My name is Monica Gleberman, and you're listening to Silence On Set Podcast. For today's podcast, I have a guest co-host, Mariana Randazzo, who is on with me to interview Edward Ashton, who's the author of Mickey Seven, which is a film currently being adapted right now, starring Robert Pattinson, Tony Collette, and being directed by Bang Hung Joon, best known from Parasite. The book is about an expendable, which is a disposable employee on a human expedition sent to colonize the ice world Nephilim. So to talk about the book, Robert Pattinson, the film, the adaptation, all the good details, we have Edward Ashton. Hi, Ed. It's so nice to see you. <laughs> have you on here? Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm so excited. I have so many questions for you about your book. I'm obsessed with it. I have it right here. It's so good. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. So I'm going to pull up my notes because you have, I have so many questions and I feel like my brain would be all over the place uh, with your book. It's so good. I, I was intrigued, like from the second I opened it from the first page. I mean, basically you're right into the action. The second the book starts. So I guess my first question, which I'm sure you've been asked a million times, but my first question initially is how did you come up with the idea of this whole kind of story? And what do you find is the most interesting about Mickey Seven? Well, I mean, as, as far as where this story came from, so the, the germ of this book really is a fascination that I've had going back to when I was a kid um, with a philosophical problem I didn't think of it when I was five years old as a philosophical problem, obviously, uh, called the teletransportation paradox. And so th this is something that philosophers have been chewing over since at least the 1750s. Uh, it's the, the question of whether if you were able to completely copy over your mind, your hopes, your dreams, your memories, your love of strawberry ice cream and your hatred of electronic dance music, put that all into a fresh body, just like your, the, the one you have now, would that be you or would that fundamentally be a different person who's now just getting his grubby hands all over your stuff? Uh, and, you know, when they first started thinking about this, it was entirely a thought exercise. It's becoming a more serious question now. People like Ray Kurzweil at Google are very serious about this. You know, that this man takes, I don't know, 250 vitamin pills a day to try to stay alive long enough for the technology to catch up to the point where he can record his consciousness into a computer. And he believes that this is a form of immortality. Um, where I first came to the question was watching Star Trek, uh, because in Star Trek, of course, they have this transporter beam. And it was clear to me, even as a five-year-old, that that wasn't transporting anybody. It was sort of recording every atom in their body or, or something like this and transmitting that information someplace else and then reconstructing a new person from local materials. And so the question that that brought to my mind was, okay, so when they first tested this thing, they're not going to transport the person right away, right? Because they don't know if it works. They're going to scan all those atoms. They'll transport the inf or transmit the information, rebuild the new person. And then if it works, if the person comes out on the other end, then they'll give you a call and say, hey, it worked okay. Go ahead and dissolve that other guy. And the question is, do you agree to be dissolved? There's a new you over there. It's fine. You've been recreated. So there's no problem with you jumping in the acid vat, right? For me, no, I don't, I don't really want to jump in the acid vat. Um, and, and so that, that was the, the thought that I had was, well, what if this were realistically possible 
to create a new person with with all of your all of your mind, all of your personality recorded. Uh, and that was the germ for Mickey. That's that's his life. That is the central paradox of his life. And then because I'm an author and as an author, I'm a sadist. I put him in the worst possible position that you could put someone someone like that in. And that's where the position of an expendable came from. It's so funny because when someone asked me my explanation of it, if they were not like a Star Trek person or didn't know any of that kind of background, I used Willy Wonka as an example. But that's what it reminds me of is like, are you the same person when those atoms travel from one place to another? And then if there are two of you, would you want the first one to be erased? So it's very interesting. And I know you have a scientific background. So I feel like that really helped kind of add in, or at least doing like the scientific research really helped add into the authenticity of reading about it and kind of looking into it. Because I even started researching after the fact, just to see like, what are people doing now? Where are we in this phase? Is this something we should be concerned about? Uh, That kind of thing. Here's where the science part comes in. Okay, so here's where my actual research comes in. One of the things that I do is functional magnetic resonance imaging. So this is a technique that lets us look at the activity in your brain when you're doing things. So we ask you to move your left pinky finger and we can see what part of your brain lights up. And that's the part that's controlling that finger. Imagine the smell of cinnamon. There's a particular part of your brain that will light up because that's where that memory is stored. We can can put you in a scanner and ask you to think about something that you did 10 years ago and one part of your brain will light up. We can ask you to think about something you did yesterday and a part of your brain will light. We can ask you to think about something someone else did and a different part of your brain will light up. So the the part of your brain that controls thinking about other people's actions is different than the one that thinks about your own actions. And so the question then becomes, what part of your brain do you think lights up when we ask you to think about something you did 10 years ago or that you will do 10 years in the future, it's the other person part. So on some level, your brain knows that you 10 years ago and you 10 years in the future are completely different people. It it treats it just from a a physiological standpoint, it treats you 10 years ago the exact same way it treats a, a completely separate individual. And that makes sense from a biological standpoint, because there's right now not a single cell in your body that was present in your body and alive 10 years ago. You literally have been remodeled completely from the ground up over the, over the course of that 10 years. And your brain knows this. Right. Because we regenerate ourselves every 10 years, yeah. give or take, right? So uh, me being 35, about to be 36, will not be the same technically me cell-wise that I was when I was 10, 15, whatever the, you know age was because we yeah. regenerate constantly. Absolutely. Yeah. And if, if you look at, if you look at uh, public service announcements and public health campaigns to try, for instance, to get people to quit smoking by saying you'll get cancer when you're 65, those don't work at all. No, no one listens to those. The reason those don't work is because on some emotional level, you know, that 65 year old person is not going to be you and it's not your problem. It's fundamentally somebody else's problem. There are other appeals that work, but mostly about the effects that things like this will have on you now. When you talk about effects that are going to happen 20, 25, 30 years in the future, those have no emotional impact on people. All right. So I was absolutely blown away by the book. It was amazing. Um, And I love that you have a scientific background. You're a brilliant author. And I was just wondering, um, what made you get into writing? I got into writing before I 
had any thought of being a scientist or doing any other stuff that I do. I, I wrote my first little short story when I was probably five or six years old. Uh, when my parents moved house some years ago, they actually sent me a folder completely full of little short stories that I'd written when I was too young to even remember doing it on sort of longhand on, on note paper. Uh, I wrote my first novel when I was 12, uh, also 200 pages written out in cursive longhand on note paper. So, I mean, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I sold my first professional story in 1988. Uh, so that this, this has been a, a very longstanding thing for me. I was literally just mind blown by everything and it was just so different and intriguing and it just grabs you. The minute you start reading it, it grabs you. So I love that. What about anything in the book that you put in from your real life? I mean, everything that goes into my writing in some way is drawn from my life. Um, I, I think that's probably true for all writers. Um, so for instance, one of my best and oldest friends is named Mickey. Uh, and he, he actually asked me, is, is that me? Like, did you base that? And, and I had to tell him, I'm not saying I did base it on you, but I'm also not saying I didn't base it on you. There, you know, there certainly are some commonalities uh, in the way I describe his appearance and, and other things to, to my friend, um, to my friend Mickey, obviously sort of little bits and pieces of my scientific research, sneak in here and there. Um, my, my background, I, I grew up uh, in West Virginia in pretty uh, rough circumstances, I would say. Um, so the idea of someone sort of coming from a, a much more lower class background and then being exposed to people who are much more in the elite of society and how difficult that can be, um, that, that's something that really came from my personal experience. So yeah, I, like I said, everything that we do as, as writers kind of seeps into us and then eventually comes comes back out like sweat out of your pores. I mean, that's, that's just sort of how it goes. We obviously get introduced to Mickey right away, right in the beginning, but I want to talk about the whole experience that we learn over time without, and we're not going to give any spoilers away, major spoilers or anything, but they obviously moved to this planet, right? And uh, Niflheim is basically where they're, they're located and it's full of snow. It's not, they're trying to inhabit this place. They have a dome there's all these workers. You have this guy that's an expendable person, which is the one that you kind of make do all of the dangerous stuff, right? In case he dies. And then the idea is that he would be cloned and his memories are uploaded on a regular basis and he would be cloned. And then a new one would form and that person takes over and does the new jobs, you know, relatively that basically the job nobody wants to do. And then you still have the memory that you of all your prior deaths and, and such. It's not a great gig, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like the best job. I was curious when you were developing in your mind what the idea of the world would look like, because we've experienced this in real life, right? Can we live on Mars? Can we live on these other planets? And we've experienced scientists trying to figure that out. Are we the only people in the universe, right? The galaxy is so large, all the, those kind of things. So when you were developing this planet, and what it was going to look like and the creatures that were going to be on it, like the creepers and various other things that you put in there. Um, were there certain elements to actual news that came into your writing there? Did you make up a lot of the stuff that was just in your brain for what you pictured this idea of where they would be living? When I read it, I picture like Antarctica, like the way it's described and how it's negative, you know, it could be like negative 30 on a good day, <laughs> you know, just like just crazy kind of environment. 
So how did you come up with the planet, the look of it? And then is it also kind of a synonym for climate and the issue that we're facing today? Um, as, as far as the environment on Niflheim, um, I live five miles from the Canadian border. So th thinking about some place that's locked in snow and ice, it comes very naturally to me. Um, that's, again, that's, that's just sort of from my lived experience. It, as far as the question of climate change and what's happening here, I'm, I actually address that directly at a couple of points in the book. As, as you know, there are a few places where I bring in stories of other colonization attempts that fail. And one of the ones that I talk about is, uh, is a planet that they attempt to colonize and it has recently undergone a runaway greenhouse effect such that it's completely uninhabitable now. The temperatures are, are such that water can't even exist on the surface anymore. And obviously there's no way that human life could possibly exist there. Part of the reason that, the, that Earth was abandoned in the first place was because similar things were happening here. Um, now I'm not, I'm not someone who's, um, I would say, overly alarmist about what's happening with the climate right now. I think um, I was an atmospheric scientist for a while. Um, I, I did CO2 change modeling, uh, in, mostly in terms of imaging and how we can image through the atmosphere because CO2 absorbs certain spectra that other gases don't. And as the concentration of CO2 goes up, we have to compensate for that with our imagers. Um, and, and so it's, it's clear to me that things are out of whack in, in the current system. I, I don't think we're going to be Venus anytime in the, in the, in the immediate future. I have a tendency to write my fears and write my concerns. And, and that definitely bled through onto the page for this book. Even the idea of having someone that has to do the jobs that nobody wants to do, even in our society, we have that, right? There's always the guy that's doing the truck driving or mm -hmm. in the sewers or whatever that nobody else wants to do. So I found it interesting that there's even a kind of caste system in this world that they're trying to develop after leaving another world that was very similar or another planet that was very similar to earth, you know? So I found that very interesting, but that still bleeds in as they're trying to develop something new. There's still a system and a hierarchy. There's still a marshal. There's still people that are in charge yet. There's still people that are quote expendable. And so I, I found that like very interesting that you added that in there. I wanted to ask you to kind of get back, I guess, to sort of the beginning. How would you describe Mickey seven? And what made you want him to get in a position where he comes face to face with Mickey eight? Well, I, Mickey seven is, you know, Mickey Barnes, the character, uh, to a certain extent, in my mind, at least is, is an everyman. Um, he is, he's a regular guy. Everybody else on this mission is the elite of the elite of the elite. They are the absolute cream of the crop of, of their society, you know, picked over to, to the nth degree. He's just a regular guy and he's stuck in, in and amongst these people and, and basically doing all their dirty work for them, um, which, you know, has some pretty obvious um, class, class conflict implications uh, as, as far as how our economic system treats workers to a certain extent. And that, that also was something that was, that was sort of in my mind. In terms of him coming face to face with, with Mickey Eight, um, that, that really was my way of bringing this question of the teletransport paradox right to the front. Um, because it's, you can fool yourself into thinking as he does at the beginning of the book. Well, if I, if I die, I come out of the tank, it's just me. I, I close my eyes, I open my eyes in, in, in my bed and everything will be fine. And that's what's gotten him through six consecutive deaths. It's this idea that, which is what they told him in his training, that it'll all be fine. 
it's just you, you'll wake up and it'll be as if nothing happened. But when you come face to face with your next iteration and that's not you, that's clearly a different person. Uh, obviously that, that brings all of that into question. And that really sort of brings forth the lie that he's been told in his training. I wanted to ask you this too. And I thought of this after I was finished reading it. Is Mickey seven the same as Mickey one? Again, that's, that's sort of the central question of his life. I, I would answer that with a question of my own. Am I the same person that I was 10 years ago? And the answer to me is absolutely not. I mean, you know, or even go back further, you know, if I think about the person that I was when I was in college, for instance, you know, my wife has told me many times if she had met me in college, we would never be married. <laughs> you know, we would not ever even have, have dated. Um, so, I, you know, I think we all change constantly. I think we're all becoming and evolving into different people. Uh, with Mickey, that evolution is just a little more punctuated with, with you know, with, with the occasional death. With most of us, it's more of a gradual process. And do you think, you know, as I was reading through it and, you know, Mickey has this issue where, you know, and, and I think this is another issue that comes up in your book. And like I said, there's so many themes and things to think about, which is why you could go down the rabbit hole. But when he meets Mickey and they are slightly different and there are some differences between the two of them, it does make you wonder. And that's why I wondered, like, is Mickey seven the same as Mickey one? Because there's been so many deaths and so many things that have happened to him over the course of time. Yet they're supposed to have the same memories and the same soul, quote unquote, if that's what you think as a carbon copy. So like, I was just, I was curious. And so like, what was he like at one? And we, we don't know. So like, I was just curious now that I have you as the author to ask, you know, what your thought was, you know, if he is different. I was wondering also with those scenes in particular and with a lot of the stuff that you write about with them being together, with them trying to like, not let anybody know what's going on and all of the stuff that they kind of get into the differences that you wrote in there. You did such a great job with the wording, the formatting, very clear, like on who's talking and what's going on. So for you, was it fun playing off of different ways of saying like, this is Mickey seven and this is how he's going to pretend he's Mickey eight. This is Mickey eight pretending that he still has the things of Mickey seven, like the kind of the balance between the two characters. It was a challenge. Uh, it was, it was a challenge that I set for myself, you know, whenever, whenever you're writing, one of the first things that we have to worry about is making sure that all of our characters have distinct voices and that they are different from one. If, if all of your characters sort of sound like you, uh, that's, that's not a good book and nobody's going to want to read it. Uh, and so in this particular case, because I have two people who are so close to one another, but not quite, not exactly, I had to give them obviously very similar voices. But with just small differences, small differences in mannerisms that were, and remember with Mickey, between Mickey 7 and Mickey 8, there is this gap of uh, six weeks where there were no uploads and a bunch of fairly traumatic stuff happens to Mickey during the period in between. So they, there actually is a load of some fairly bad experience that Mickey 7 carries that 8 doesn't. And that's the key to the differences between them. And, and I, had, I had to bring that out in their voice and in their, and in their attitudes towards things. And, and yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a challenge. It was a fun challenge. I think similar to uh, if you look at what actors do when they portray, you know, for instance, the actor is going to portray Mickey 7 and Mickey 8 in the movie. Um, one of the reasons that actors love roles like that is because it gives them a chance to really show off their chops, that they can, that they can bring these subtle differences into their characters to make it clear because you want the audience to be able to know who's who's talking without having to tell them. And that's that's the challenge I had in, in writing was 
to make sure that my readers are not confused and that there's enough differences in mannerism and voice that you can tell who's speaking, even though they are very, very similar people. Yeah. And you do such a great job of that. Um, I just felt like they were so well-developed and the voice was clear. It was very clear, like who was talking and who was saying what, but I did like, and I, you know, and like I said, it's a very cerebral book. It's a very smart and intelligent book when you're reading it. And I do remember in the very beginning, there's just this, when he's stuck in that hole and, you know, they come and they're like, oh, we can't rescue you. Sorry. And have you updated? When was your last update? And he kind of goes, uh, like a month, like, I don't know, like a month ago and kind of blows it off. Did anything happen that I should tell your new, you know, the new Mickey? And he's like, no, it's, it's fine. And that comes into play obviously later. Cause you get to mm-hmm. you know find out, but it was so, it was so nonchalant in the beginning that I don't even think you think about it. You know, so you just go, oh, all right, there's going to be another one. And he shows up and he opens the door and there's another one in his bed. And you don't think about those things. But I can understand how that period of time and what we learned happened can make those differences happen, you know, like between the two of them. So I think it was a really smart decision, but I didn't even think about it until we get to that point. And it's because you like inserted it. So it was there right in the beginning. It's there that he wasn't uploaded right away, but we kind of don't feel the effects of that, I guess I should say, till like a little later in, in the book, which I thought was a really smart decision. Well, that's one of the really big challenges you have when you're putting a book together is in the early parts, you have to drop enough hints, enough little breadcrumbs, such that when decision points come, when cruxes come, the reader says, oh yeah, that's exactly what would happen. You know, when, when, a, when a character has to make a decision, the reader has to read what he does and say, oh boy, that's, yeah, that's Birdo. That's what he would do. And you have to have dropped enough hints about his personality and about his background in the earlier parts of the book to make the reader feel that because there's nothing that'll pull you out of a story faster than having a character do something that clearly just looks like they're a puppet dancing on the author's strings because the author needed them to go into this room or break up with their girlfriend or whatever to advance the plot. Um, it, it, it has to feel organic and you really have to leave those sort of uh, trails of breadcrumbs behind in the early parts of the book to make it work that way. How do you balance the science aspect in the novel to be understandable to everyone? That's always a challenge. Um, I'm a, one of the things I do is I'm a science educator. Um, I, I teach uh, I, both in my day job and in, when, I'm, when I'm actually teaching graduate students. Um, quantum physics is tricky. Uh, and, and to try to get that down to where it can be easily understood uh, is, is, is something that I've worked on for many years. Uh, and so when I'm, when I'm writing, I try to put enough science into the books such that if you are someone with a strong scientific background, you're not going to read it and say, oh, come on, that's, that's not right. But at the same time, you don't want to stop your book for a physics lecture. Nobody wants to hear that either. Nobody wants to see a bunch of equations in, in a novel that they picked up for fun. Uh, and so I, I really try to walk that tightrope of, of putting enough in to make things plausible, but not so much that it slows things down. Because it, my, my first goal is, uh, is, is not to teach people about anything. My, my first goal is to have an entertaining, fast-moving story. And, it, you know, I, I, think, uh, I, I think I found that balance with this book pretty well. Um, you know, I, I, other people may come to different judgments. I've, I've heard people on, but complain a little bit on both sides that there's not enough science and other people saying, well, you know, I didn't really want to hear about any matter this or that. When you've got people complaining from both sides, it's a good sign that maybe you found the right, the right tightrope to walk. I think it's a perfect mix. I don't know. I found it to be a perfect mix because I think it's explainable. It's easy to understand what you're saying, but it's also enough to make you think. 
or look up things or try to be educated or want to learn more. So to me, it, it came out as a perfect balance. Um, I was just thinking like, while you were talking too, like there's also that philosophy aspect when you just to make sure that I didn't want to bring it up. Um, but since it's kind of like known about it, um, you know, Mickey, there's a point where he ref- like reflects on the ship and the story of, I think it's like atheists, right? Um, atheists. I'm not, I don't know if I'm saying that right. And that, and I looked the story up too, and about this ship traveling around the world made out of wood and that various things would happen to it and have to be replaced over time. And is that ship still the same ship? So why is that story? Now, obviously there's parallels clearly between the character and the ship and, and that story. But why does that story resonate with Mickey or seem to be something that he thinks about as he's kind of going through everything? Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like um, this story, it's, which is originally um, from Plutarch. Uh, he's, he's the one who first came up with this thought experiment know, 2,700 years ago. Um, but I really think it's a, it's a very tight analogy for his life. Don't you? I mean, it, it, it's, um, it's an analogy for all of our lives. To a certain extent, as I said, our, our bodies are all being remodeled. The, the ship is remodeled one, one plank at a time. And again, the question of, okay, every single plank on the ship has been replaced. Is it the same ship? Every single cell in your body has been replaced in the last 10 years. Are you the same person? What if the ship is wrecked and you have to rebuild it all, all at once, just to the exact same? And, and that's essentially what happens to him every time he dies. Uh, and again, that, that sort of, that story is one that his trainers drill into him to try to convince him that, that everything's fine. He can go ahead and die and it won't be a problem because we'll just bring you back and it will be the same you, just like it's the same ship. Uh, and said that, that one of the main conflicts in the book is him coming to realize that maybe that was a lie. Yeah. And what I also found interesting too, is in the beginning, we meet like a creature, right? That is not your typical creeper because we learned that the creepers are white. They kind of fade in with the snow and like there's various other kind of native things on this planet. I want to ask you why you felt for the first creature that we kind of come upon in the book why it why it seems to help Mickey Seven. So it seems to help him, which kind of starts the whole story off. Why did you make that creature kind of friendly-ish versus the creepers and the other ones that are slowly starting to attack the civilization? Well, I'm always interested in the interaction between cultures that don't uh, fundamentally don't understand one another. So I, I didn't want to set the creepers up as being antagonists. I didn't want to set them up as being sort of like the evil monsters that have to be fought. I also didn't want to set them up as being sort of the friendly, benevolent helpers. They're just trying to live their lives, just like the humans are just trying to live their lives. And, and the conflict comes from when they fail to understand one another and they interact in bad ways. Um, so that, you know, the creeper that helps Mickey is, is to illustrate the fact that these things, they're not malicious creatures. He didn't have a reason to hurt Mickey or to kill Mickey. And we find out later that the creepers aren't actually interested in, they're not interested in killing humans. That's not what they're there for. Um, what's perceived as attacks are not really attacks. It's, it's their sort of self-interested behavior. It's just, it's, it's just them, again, sort of trying to live their lives. Uh, and if I had set it up in the beginning as more of an antagonistic relationship, now you've just got like a starship troopers kind of fighting the aliens scenario. And I, I did not want to go down that road. That's, that's not a sort of plot line that I'm, I'm interested in. My stories 
don't tend to have villains, really. They've just got different people, different creatures that have their own interests and are just trying to do what's best for them and their own. And occasionally that causes bad things to happen to other people. And then for the character, you know, there's obviously a, a, a bunch of other characters in the book. For I was very interested in Nasha in particular because of her background and because she is almost like kind of like an immigrant of what we would use today or like a refugee. So I wanted to know, again, it does bleed so much into our realistic life, like when you're reading this book. So was that a conscious choice to have her be someone that has this background where she came from one place, moved to another, had to kind of flee, is kind of like an immigrant, but yet is of somewhat of power. She's a pilot. She's able to, you know, do certain things. So I was just curious if like that kind of subconsciously bled in or there was like a, a specific philosophy or point that you were making with that and her background. Yeah, that, that was a conscious choice. Um, one of the things that I like about science fiction is that it allows us to address problems of the, of the present world in a way that doesn't cause people reading to become defensive. So if you directly talk about um, you know, anti-immigrant bias in America right now, half your readers are going to get their backs up. They're gonna get upset because, hey, he's talking about me and that makes me angry. If I take that same basic principle and set it a thousand years in the future and in a planet 50 light years away, you can read it without your emotional blinders on. Uh, and I think it's it's easier to get your point across. And that's that's really what I was trying to do with Nasha's story. Yeah, I really like that that was added in there because I just felt right when I read it, I felt you connect to it, but you're right. You don't judge it, but you you definitely connect to it. And right away I was like, ooh, that like bleeds right into now. And again, like I said, and I'll probably keep saying this throughout it, but like leaves you down the rabbit hole because then you start thinking, wow, like, it's one it's okay for her and she's kind of accepted but then here we don't really you know there's an argument on one way or the other so um it's presented in a way where it's not argumentative or or taking one side but it's in there to make you talk and we did like in me and a friend that also read it did discuss that and i was like did you notice that did you like notice that he put that in there about her background and then we started talking about it and we were just curious so um again it was just something um as a reader that really enjoyed the book just wanted to know I'm like did he do that on purpose or is that like a a subconscious thing but it's it's nice to know because there are so many of these issues that we're kind of dealing with and like you even said even the idea of cloning is something that is an issue that is real that people are talking about and trying to figure yeah. out so I like the comparisons and I think it continually brings you back to your own personal thoughts and feelings, it also prevents you from putting the book down. <laughs> Cause I was just like, kind of like, what's happening next? What's going on? What's going on? Um, Cause the pacing was so good. So um, yeah, I just found, I just found that very interesting. So I will, I will give it to Mariana if she wants to ask. I have a couple other things, but. Yeah, I wanted to ask, um, do you plan on extending the, to write another book and extending these characters? Uh, absolutely. Uh, actually, the sequel is already available for pre-order. It's called Antimatter Blues. Uh, it's uh, set to be released in March of 2023. So that's that book's already complete. It's already written. The question is, is there going to be a third book, uh, which is 
you know, partly based on the reception that the second book gets, because that's just sort of how the publishing world works. But the second one is already in the can and it's and it's uh, up for pre-sale right now. I wanted to ask you, you know, I don't want to um, go too over time. So I want to make sure that I get to obviously, and I know you mentioned this, this is getting adapted to a movie. There was, you know, a little news about it, <laughs> just a little bit um, about this. And I'm so excited because like how I pictured in my mind, I'm like, I, the director and the actors that are attached could not be more perfect. I feel like for what I see in my brain, I can't wait to see the technology, the advances, um, the machine, like just like so many things of the book. I'm, I'm like so excited to see. So when you got approached for the adaptation, which was before the book even came out, mm-hmm. what was your take on that? And then did you have any preferences in terms of casting and how do you feel now that there are, there's been announcements, obviously like Robert Pattinson is attached and I, I'm assuming is playing Mickey seven. So um, how do you feel about all of that? I mean, it's, it's been a, a long process. Um, as you said, that the first um, option of the book by Warner Brothers uh, and, and plan B occurred in March of 2020. So it's, it's been a, you know, it's been a long process. When that first occurred, I mean, obviously I was very happy. Um, but you don't get too excited because these studios, they option 99 properties for every one that actually gets made into a movie. And if you talk to writers, a very common refrain is, well, yeah, I mean, obviously I've had like five different books option. None of them got made, obviously. I mean, that's, that's something people say all the time, uh, like Old Man's War from John Scalzi. It's been optioned four different times by four different studios and, you know, still hasn't got produced. Uh, you know, I had, I had some discussions. I actually had a call with Director Bong, which was fantastic. We were on the on the phone for about two hours talking about the book that was really exciting but still there, there was no commitment um nothing uh nothing definite and i was still thinking you know there's, there's not really any point in worrying about that and then one day i was i'm sitting at the breakfast table my wife's sitting across from me my phone dings and i pick it up and my wife looks at me and says oh god who died because apparently my face just went white and it was they they had announced that Robert Pattinson had signed on to, to star in the movie and that Bong Joon-ho was directing. And at that point, um, that's when I knew that it was actually going to move forward. Uh, and, and things got very crazy very quickly after that. Uh, I, I didn't have any preconceived ideas about casting because I thought the idea that the movie would actually get made was so remote that there was no point to worry about it. Um, in terms of who actually has been cast, I'm 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 extremely happy. Um, I think I think Robert Pattinson is going to blow the doors off. I think he's, uh, you know, he's he's a great actor. Um, Bong Joon Ho obviously is is a genius. Um, just having spoken to him that one time, he he knew the book better than I did. Uh, he he had read it through and thought about things and aspects of the story that I hadn't even considered. Uh, he's he's a very insightful person. People have asked me if I'm nervous that someone else is writing the script to this movie. If it were someone else doing it other than director Bong, I might be nervous, but with him, absolutely not. He's the man's never made a bad movie in his life. And uh, you know, I, I don't think he's going to start with this one. I, I think, I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Uh, as far as the rest of the cast who signed on, you know, people like Mark Ruffalo and Tony Collette and Steven Yoon and uh, Naomi Aki. I mean, you, you can't do better. You, you really can't do better. I could not be happier. Uh, with 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 the group that they have work on this movie and I'm, I'm just really really excited to to see what it looks like 
Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy because I have interviewed a lot of authors or screenwriters and it gets optioned and it could be like a year and then you have an extension, maybe six months, and then it kind of comes back to you and floats around. Yeah. So I can understand that kind of being like, yeah, yeah, like someone's interested in a share. And then you literally like find out and I can't imagine what that must have felt like to just like see it on your phone and be like, wow, not only did someone adapt it and it's moving forward, but it's like one of the best directors known to man and pretty much one of the best casts and the most anticipated movie I would say of any adaptation I've heard probably in the past couple of years if not ever I mean people are really anticipating this film so um I could just imagine I don't even know what that must have felt like as as a writer I mean it's probably like a dream moment in your life yeah it's I mean it's it's indescribable um I still sometimes have difficulty believing that this is, is all actual life. I, I sometimes wonder if I'm going to sort of wake up in the hospital. I've been in a coma for the last six months or something, but uh, you know, I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. You know, th- until they turn off the morphine drip, I guess I'm, I'm going to continue to enjoy it. Um, what is your most excited thing to see um, adapted on screen from your book? When we were speaking, Director Bong made it clear to me that, um, you know, we're going from a 350 page novel to a 120 page script. A lot of stuff's going to come out. The things are going to be changed. It was pretty clear there were some aspects of the story that I thought were relatively minor that he thought were much more interesting that he's probably going to emphasize. He may de-emphasize other things. But he said to me, I will let you and ask you right now, pick one thing. There's one chapter, one scene in this book that you definitely want in the movie. And I will promise you that I will put it in there. I said, okay, I want, I want chapter 19. I want that in there. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil everything that happens. Every, you've read the book, you can go back and flip through and know what I'm talking about. Because that chapter to me is the emotional core of the book. That's what establishes the bond between Mickey and Nasha and makes you understand why they feel about each other the way that they do. And he immediately said, oh, I was going to include that anyway. So thanks. That's, <laughs> that's fine. It's like, do I get to pick another one? No, that's it. So Oh, that's such a big choice. Yeah, I'm really really excited to see what he's able to do with that. Yeah, so for everyone listening, watching, when you're reading the book, Flag Chapter 19, that is such a good choice because literally when you said that, I was like, oh my God, what do you choose? Because like so much of it is so good. There's not a single scene that I would cut out of the book. I I felt like everything was needed. The pace was perfect. So I'm like, ooh, like what would I choose? But the second you said it, I went, I started nodding right away. People can't see me, but I started nodding right away because I was like, oh, I get it. I completely understand because that chapter is very pivotal and there's so much background and there's so much information. And we learned so much about the reasoning behind things and why he might be making certain decisions and their connection. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of almost like the heart of a lot of like what we see. And then when you reflect backwards too on the chapters you read prior, a lot more kind of makes sense if you really take a moment out. Um, so I guess I'll just end with fans are obviously super excited. People are obsessed with this book. Everybody's reviewing it. Everybody loves it. Your whole life has changed in 30 seconds with, a, with an announcement and this movie moving forward. So I guess I'll just end with how would you describe the book and what is going to, what would you tell fans to get excited about for the movie? I know like you might not be, you know, there every single day. You might not be writing every single thing that they're looking at, but kind of both aspects. So like, how would you explain the book? to somebody that's never read it and why they should pick it up and what should they be excited about for the film? If I give you a sort of a one sentence description of the book, it's, uh, you know, it's a story about a man whose job is to die. It's a, it's a dark comedy. Um, it's sort of a gallows humor sort of book, um, but with a, a, a strong part. 
beneath it. Uh, a lot of, I think, some emotional resonance and, and a strong philosophical core. Uh, in terms of movie, I mean, I obviously I don't know exactly what's going to go into it, what's not, but um, you, you've got I, I feel like the source material is good. I feel pretty good about that. Um, you've got some of the best actors in the world. You've got um, an absolutely brilliant director. I, I, I don't see how this isn't going to turn out to be a just an absolutely phenomenal film. I'm so excited. I can't wait. And like I said, I love the book. I'm so excited for the next one. Just to put it out in the universe, if you make a third one, that would be awesome to continue the story. I, I would love to. So if, if you want to send a note to my editor, that would be great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us. Like I said, I, I'm sure we could continue going down the rabbit hole and literally picking. I mean, like I have like 50 more questions I wrote down about philosophy and questions and death and all these things but I mean I would just go nuts because I totally nerded out on this book it's just gonna be huge and I just could not be happier for you well thank you very much you're you are far too kind well thank you so much and thank you for taking the time out to speak with us and I'm sorry we went a little over well there's literally nothing I like more than than talking about my book so uh, <laughs> you know, as long as you wanted to go it's fine with me well, thank you so much. And I'm sure we will be talking hopefully again when the movie comes out. And I'll be asking you a million questions about the adaptations and various things. But we know chapter 19 is safe. So that's good. Absolutely. And for readers, they'll they'll know that section is good and we're safe with that. So that's good to know. So I'm excited and thank just thank you so much. Thank you. Thank I really you. appreciate the time. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Edward Ashton talk about Mickey Seven, the book all of the background information and what's to come with the film, make sure you go online and buy it now. It's available everywhere. And you could pre-order the sequel to Mickey 7, which is called Antimatter Blues. I also want to thank my co-host, Mariana, for joining me. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you're updated on all of our latest podcasts. And head over to YouTube and hit subscribe so you're updated on all of our video content. Uh -huh.